When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a fine line between a prank and a hoax. Pranks are often simple things. Whether it's slipping a whoopee cushion onto someone's chair, or jumping out of a closet and shouting boo, or something much bigger like the time Steve Jobs famously called a San Francisco Starbucks during his 2007 iPhone keynote and ordered 4,000 lattes. Pranks are meant to be quick and to the point. But a well-crafted hoax? Well, that's a horse of a different color. A good hoax takes planning, for one thing, and a really good hoax has some serious staying power. Take, for example, the famous surgeon's photo of the Loch Ness Monster. I'm sure you've all seen it, that dark silhouette of a curved-necked creature poking its head gently out of the water. That photo was first released to the public in 1934 by a respected British surgeon, Colonel Robert Wilson. But it wasn't until six decades later, when in 1994, a 90-year-old man named Christian Sperling was on his deathbed and revealed that the photo had been an elaborate hoax dreamed up by his stepfather. And the monster, we've all come to know, was just a tiny wooden model a few inches tall. Sperling built the model to his stepfather's specifications. Then they floated it on the water, took the photo, and gave it to the surgeon in order to provide it an air of credibility. A person skilled in the art of the hoax knows two things that there's no such thing as too big of a hoax. And if you know what you're doing, you can convince people to believe anything you want. There's a certain term that dates back to around 1750 for that sort of Zen master level hoaxery, a humbug. There are many different potential origins to the term. One of the more common explanations for the term is that it's derived from the Norse word hum, which means night or shadow, and the biblical term bugis, a variant of the word boogie, meaning apparition. And yes, that is where the term boogeyman comes from. The boogeyman is, after all, an imaginary apparition. And the term humbug originally meant roughly the same thing. That is, until it began to take on its more contemporary meaning of someone or something deceitful, far-fetched, or unbelievable. But just because something is unbelievable doesn't mean people won't fall for it hook, line, and sinker. Back in 1835, an enterprising young man went into business with a New York businessman named John Moody. Together they opened a small grocery store on South Street, down by the wharves on the Lower East Side. Much of their business came from the dock workers and other more shady individuals who hung out around the area. On a sunny July day, an acquaintance named Coley Bartram arrived at the store and struck up a conversation with the young man. He had just sold the key part of a show to a Kentucky promoter named R.W. Lindsay. Lindsay had bought this particular act with the thought that he'd make his fortune, but he had little notion how to go about it. Coley Bartram had known the young man wanted to get into show business, and he had the opportunity of a lifetime just waiting for the right individual. Lindsay wanted to sell the act, and he'd be willing to part with it for only $3,000. 
The young man went with Bartram to see the act for himself, and he instantly knew he'd struck gold. He talked Lindsay down to $1,000, which he got by selling his stake in the store for half the money and borrowing the rest. The young man laid claim to his prize and set about spinning the first of many great humbugs he'd be responsible for throughout his life. The young man's name was P.T. Barnum, and he would go on to become the greatest showman on earth. I'm Nate Hale and pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And this is The Conspirators. Phineas Taylor Barnum was born on July 5, 1810, in Bethel, Connecticut. His father, Philo Barnum, was a farmer, tavern keeper, tailor, and grocer, and he went on to father ten children by two different women. Phineas was Philo's sixth child from his second wife, Irene. Bethel was a church-going community and a stronghold of conservative values. Phineas's maternal grandfather had a reputation as a practical joker, a trait that he passed on to his grandson. Phineas's father died when he was a teenager, leaving him to help support the rest of the family. Barnum hated farm work, so he began a series of different business ventures, all in an attempt to make money from something other than farming. At 19, he married a local girl named Cherry Hallett, and a couple years after that, he would go on to start up the grocery store he co-owned with John Moody. Whether it was dumb luck, fate, or just Barnum's innate sense that he was destined for something bigger, we'll never know. But it was on that July day in 1835 that Phineas Taylor Barnum's career in show business would truly begin. The act that Bartram sold to Barnum that day was an old blind slave woman named Joyce Heth, and Bartram claimed she was 161 years old. Bartram provided P.T. Barnum with proof in the form of a bill of sale dated 1727. Even more interesting than her age, though, was the name on the bill of sale. It said that the man who had originally sold Joyce Heth was Augustine Washington, the father of George Washington. Joyce Heth, Bartram explained, had been George Washington's nurse. She had been there right from the first president's birth and had practically raised him as her own. Joyce Heth was blind and toothless. She could no longer walk, but her memory was sharp as a tack and she could tell endless stories about the young George Washington while puffing on her pipe. Barnum set Joyce Heth up in a room in the private home of William Neblo, a local restaurateur. Then he plastered the town with flyers and posters inviting people to come view the attraction he described as unquestionably the most astonishing and interesting curiosity in the world. And the people came, all right. Thousands of them each day crowded into Niblo's home to see George Washington's nurse and to hear her stories. At their peak, they were raking in $1,500 per week. When ticket sales slowed in New York, Barnum took the show on the road throughout New England. There, he ran into many opponents of slavery, but he promised to use the money from ticket sales to buy the freedom of Heth's five great-grandchildren, who were still slaves in Kentucky. In fact, later in life, Barnum would go on to become a fierce abolitionist. Joyce Heth, who had never been in the best of health, died on February 19, 1836, while under the care of Barnum's half-brother Philo. By then, the newspapers were not being at all kind to Barnum, describing the entire act as an elaborate hoax and denouncing the idea that Heth was 161 years old. 
interest in Heth began to wane. So to drum up more business, Barnum began spreading a rumor that he had been tricked as well, and that this wasn't the real Joyce Heth. Instead, he said, it was something else entirely. It turns out, she was a robot. An automaton, to be more exact. A replica of George Washington's real nurse made of gears and whale bones. Barnum charged 50 cents a head for people to come out and witness the autopsy and see for themselves. That's where it was revealed that Joyce Heth could not have been more than 80, but Barnum didn't care. He already got their money. In 1841, Barnum learned that Scudder's American Museum, a sizable collection of relics and rare curiosities, was up for sale in New York City. Barnum purchased the museum and reopened it under the name Barnum's American Museum. He became a relentless collector of weird and bizarre attractions. He also became quite skilled at driving up business. He put powerful floodlights up on the roof of the building and invited people to free rooftop concerts but then made sure he hired the worst musicians money could buy in order to drive people off the rooftop down into the museum, where, of course, they'd have to pay admission. Inside the museum, visitors would encounter all sorts of attractions. Giants, Native Americans, dog shows, jugglers, even actors putting on dramatic readings from plays. Some of the other acts Barnum made popular could easily each get their own podcast devoted to just them. There was Jenny Lynn, the singer known as the Nightingale, Jumbo the Elephant, Chang and Eng Bunker, the famous Siamese twins, and probably his most famous act of all, the diminutive Tom Stratton, better known as General Tom Thumb. Right at the end he had a giant arrow pointed to the exotic egress, which patrons found out the hard way meant exit, and as soon as they were outside that meant they'd have to pay the admission again to get back in. In July 1842, an Englishman calling himself Dr. J. Griffin of the British Lyceum of Natural History arrived in New York with a remarkable find. The body of a real mermaid he'd caught near the Fiji Islands in the South Pacific. The press had been anxiously awaiting his arrival. Throughout the summer, the newspapers had received numerous letters from various southern correspondents describing the doctor and his miraculous find. When Dr. Griffin arrived at his hotel, he was mobbed by reporters hoping to hear his story and catch a glimpse of the mermaid. What they heard and saw convinced them all. Not long after, Barnum began showing up at the offices of the major papers to explain that he'd been trying to get the unwilling doctor to display the mermaid at his museum. But so far, no luck. So Barnum kindly provided the papers with a woodcut of a lovely bare-breasted mermaid that he prepared for his museum. But since he couldn't use it now, the papers were welcome to it. The papers gladly obliged and ran copies of the woodcut, each thinking that they'd gotten an exclusive. At the same time, Barnum plastered the town with 10,000 pamphlets about mermaids. Barnum managed to make his message go viral centuries before there was an internet. Soon, interest grew so high that Dr. Griffin finally relented and agreed to exhibit his mermaid for one week only at the concert hall on Broadway. Enormous crowds showed up to see the mermaid and to hear Dr. Griffin's lecture. His evidence that mermaids existed was based around the idea that because so many other land creatures had counterparts in the sea, like the seahorse and the sea lion, that it only made sense there would be a humanoid creature that lived in the ocean. After the week-long event, Dr. Griffin agreed to allow the Fiji mermaid to go on display at Barnum's American Museum. Ticket sales tripled at the museum overnight. People were amazed, finally seeing proof positive that mermaids were real with their very own eyes. 
even if the actual mermaid wasn't quite the topless beauty they'd been led to expect from the half-naked woodcut that ran in all the newspapers. No, this mermaid was a diminutive specimen, small enough to fit in both hands. And though the lower half was very fish-like, the top half was quite hideous, shriveled and blackened with sharp teeth and gnarled little hands twisted up almost defensively. Oh, and there were a couple of other problems, too. Namely, the Fiji mermaid was a total fake, and so was Dr. Griffin. Griffin was no English gentleman, and there was no such thing as the British Lyceum of Natural History. The man's real name was Levi Lyman, and Barnum hired him to give his humbug an air of scientific authenticity. The mermaid was actually a fairly common artifact of Japan and the West Indies, where artisans would construct these faux mermaids by carefully stitching the upper torso of a monkey to a fishtail. Barnum would later allow the Fiji mermaid to be exhibited throughout the South, a museum in Boston, and even a trip to London. In 1865, Barnum's museum burned down. Some people say the original mermaid went up in the blaze, while others say it was still around after that. Either way, by the 1880s, the original Fiji mermaid was definitely lost and never recovered, and all we have now are a few photographs of her. In 1843, Barnum began putting up posters around town advertising a grand buffalo hunt that was to take place across the river in Hoboken on August 31st. People were invited to come see the hunt for themselves, where they would be well protected behind some thick double rail fencing as real cowboys would pretend to hunt and lasso a herd of wild buffalo they'd imported from New Mexico. Most important of all, the event was free to the public. But there's free, and then there's free, in air quotes. Barnum cut a deal with the Hoboken ferry operators to split their profits from that day in half. He'd expected about 16,000 visitors to make the trip that day, but it was closer to around 24,000 and he ended up making a profit of $3,500. The crowds were a little underwhelmed when they made the trek to Hoboken, only to see the wild, dangerous herd that had been advertised was really a few scrawny, malnourished buffalo Barnum purchased from a local merchant for $700. And the so-called heavy-duty double-thrailed fencing? Well, that was just a flimsy barrier that broke quickly once the loud and boisterous crowd startled the animals into busting through and escaping into the swamp. Then there was Barnum's role in what is often called America's biggest hoax, the Cardiff Giant. It all started with a tobacconist from New York named George Hall, who in 1867 went to Ackley, Iowa for business and ended up getting into a lengthy argument with a Methodist preacher over the man's insistence that every word of the Bible should be taken literally. They really got into it over the phrase from the book of Genesis that said there were giants in the earth in those days. Hall was already a vocal atheist, and that night as he lay in bed, he got an idea to show how gullible churchgoers were. He spent the next two years and $2,600 of his own money looking for all the right elements he needed to perpetrate his hoax. In Fort Dodge, Iowa, he quarried a five-ton block of gypsum and had it shipped to Chicago, where he had a team of sculptors waiting, who crafted the enormous slab of rock into a 10-foot, 3,000-pound replica of a giant human. They gave it all sorts of fine details for realism. Nostrils, clearly defined ribs, an Adam's apple, even some muscular definition. The left leg was twisted over the right, and one of the giant's hands appeared to be clutching protectively at its stomach as if in pain. Although they also made sure to give him just a hint of a serene smile. Next, Hall toured several states looking for the right burial location. He found just the spot on a farm owned by his cousin William Newell in Cardiff, New York. 
Cardiff was an ideal location for such a find, because the area had a long history of hosting religious revivals and movements, led by many fire and brimstone spouting preachers who claimed this was holy land. On October 16, 1869, Hull and Newell hired some workers to dig a well on Newell's property. When they got a few feet into the earth, they uncovered what appeared to be a massive human foot. Word of the giant spread quickly. By the following day, a Sunday of course, more than 10,000 people had heard of the giant just by word of mouth alone. By Monday, Newell raised a tent over the newly unearthed giant was charging 50 cents a head for a 15-minute viewing. They averaged about 300 to 500 visitors a day, with nearly 3,000 visitors one day at its peak. On Tuesday, the New York Daily Tribune read a front-page article on the giant, and within days it became national news. Hall knew he had a limited amount of time to cash in and make a profit before his hoax was revealed. On October 23, 1869, a group of businessmen bought a 75% stake in the giant for $30,000. They moved the giant to Syracuse, New York, and for a long time after, various newspapers published articles containing different theories about what the giant was and how it came to be in the petrified state it was in. Some claimed it was just what it appeared to be, the petrified remains of some giant from ancient history. Others thought it was an enormous statue, a relic from some lost part of prehistory. Few dared speculate back then that it was just what it appeared to be, a fake. Shortly after the giant was moved to New York, P.T. Barnum offered $50,000 to buy a 25% stake in the artifact. The businessmen turned Barnum down flatly. So Barnum did the sort of thing he always did. He had his own giant made, and began running ads implying that the Cardiff giant was a fake, and that Barnum's giant was the real deal. Some historians have claimed that David Hannum, one of the Syracuse investors, was actually the one who coined the famous phrase that Barnum is often falsely credited with. There's a sucker born every minute. On November 25, 1869, famed paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh, who was featured in our episode on the Bone Wars, penned a scathing article about the giant, declaring it a fake. In December 1869, the Cardiff Giants' owners took Barnum to court and tried to get an injunction against him to stop showing his giant, but the request was denied. They soon moved the Cardiff Giant to New York and put it on display only a few blocks away from Barnum's. Amazingly, they both made money. Soon after, on February 2, 1870, the Chicago Tribune published an expose that revealed the hoax and included the confessions of the masons who carved the giant. Still, interest in the giant continued for a few more years, until other hoaxers began popping up around the country with their own fake giants. And finally, interest waned. Barnum continued to live the life of the ultimate showman. He didn't even get into the circus business until he was 60 years old when he bought a traveling circus and menagerie and named it P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. It went through several names before merging with another traveling circus owned by James Bailey and James Hutchinson in 1881. And thus, Barnum and Bailey's Circus was born. Barnum became a fierce abolitionist, as well as a strong proponent of the temperance movement later in life. In the 1860s, he was elected to the Connecticut State Legislature and in 1875 he became mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. In 1854 he published his autobiography and released it in the public domain. A lot of people were angry when they read how he'd managed to dupe them over the years, but Barnum took it in stride. It was all just in good fun, he said. Barnum suffered a stroke during a performance in 1890, 
and remained in poor health in the months that followed. He knew his end was near, so in the weeks before his death in 1891, he did one more very Barnum thing. He published his own obituary, just so he'd get to read it before he died. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, a humbug in my own right. If you like the show, please support us by downloading us on iTunes and leaving us a good review. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks as always for listening.